0: Section 3 of The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Volume 1, by Edgar Allan Poe. Section 3. Death of Edgar A. Poe by N. P. Willis. The ancient fable of two antagonistic spirits imprisoned in one body, equally powerful, and having the complete mastery by turns of one man, that is to say, inhabited by both a devil and an angel, seems to have been realized, if all we hear is true, in the character of the extraordinary man whose name we have written above. OUR OWN IMPRESSION OF THE NATURE OF EDGAR A. POE DIFFERS IN SOME IMPORTANT DEGREE, HOWEVER, FROM THAT WHICH HAS BEEN GENERALLY CONVEYED IN THE NOTICES OF HIS DEATH. LET US, BEFORE TELLING WHAT WE PERSONALLY KNOW OF HIM, COPY A GRAPHIC AND HIGHLY FINISHED portraiture FROM THE PEN OF DR. RUFUS W. GRISWOLD, WHICH APPEARED IN A RECENT NUMBER OF THE TRIBUNE. EDGAR Allan POE IS DEAD. He died in baltimore on sunday october 7th this announcement will startle many but few will be grieved by it the poet was known personally or by reputation in all this country he had readers in england and in several of the states of continental europe but he had few or no friends and the regrets for his death will be suggested principally by the consideration that in him literary art has lost one of its most brilliant but erratic stars his conversation was at times almost supramortal in its eloquence his voice was modulated with astonishing skill and his large invariably expressive eyes looked repose or shot fiery tumult into theirs who listened while his own face glowed or was changeless in pallor as his imagination quickened his blood or drew it back frozen to his heart his imagery was from the worlds which no mortals can see but with the vision of genius suddenly starting from a proposition exactly and sharply defined in terms of utmost simplicity and clearness he rejected the forms of customary logic and by a crystalline process of accretion built up his ocular demonstrations in forms of gloomiest and ghastliest grandeur, or in those of the most airy and delicious beauty, so minutely and distinctly, yet so rapidly, that the attention which was yielded to him was chained till it stood among his wonderful creations, till he himself dissolved the spell, and brought his hearers back to common and base existence, by vulgar fancies." or exhibitions of the ignoblest passion. He was at all times a dreamer dwelling in ideal realms in heaven or hell, peopled with the creatures and the accidents of his brain. He walked the streets, in madness or melancholy, with lips moving in indistinct curses, or with eyes upturned in passionate prayer, never for himself, for he felt, or professed to feel, That he was already damned but for their happiness who at the moment were objects of his idolatry or with his glances introverted to a heart gnawed with anguish and with a face shrouded in gloom he would brave the wildest storms and all night with drenched garments and arms beating the winds and rains would speak as if the spirits that at such times only could be evoked by him from the aden close by whose portals his disturbed soul sought to forget the ills to which his constitution subjected him, close by the Aden, where were those he loved, the Aden which he might never see but in fitful glimpses, as its gates opened to receive the less fiery and more happy natures whose destiny to sin did not involve the doom of death. He seemed, except when some fitful pursuit subjugated his will and engrossed his faculties, always to bear the memory of some controlling sorrow. The remarkable poem of The Raven was probably much more nearly than has been supposed, even by those who were very intimate with him, a reflection and an echo of his own history. He was that bird's, unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster, followed fast, and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope, that melancholy burden bore, of never, never more. Every genuine author, in a greater or less degree, leaves in his works, whatever their design, traces of his personal character elements of his immortal being in which the individual survives the person while we read the pages of the fall of the house of usher or of mesmeric revelations we see in the solemn and stately gloom which invests one and in the subtle metaphysical analysis of both indications of the idiosyncrasies of what was most remarkable and peculiar in the author's intellectual nature But we see here only the better phases of his nature, only the symbols of his juster action, for his harsh experience had deprived him of all faith in man or woman. He had made up his mind upon the numberless complexities of the social world, and the whole system with him was an imposture. This conviction gave a direction to his shrewd and naturally unamiable character. Still. Though he regarded society as composed altogether of villains, the sharpness of his intellect was not of that kind which enabled him to cope with villainy, while it continually caused him by overshots to fail of the success of honesty. He was in many respects like Francis Vivian in Bulwer's novel of The Caxton's. Passion in him comprehended many of the worst emotions which militate against human happiness. You could not contradict him, but you raised quick collar. You could not speak of wealth, but his cheek paled with gnawing envy. The astonishing natural advantages of this poor boy, his beauty, his readiness, the daring spirit that breathed around him like a fiery atmosphere, had raised his constitutional self-confidence into an arrogance that turned his very claims, to admiration, into prejudices against him. Irascible, envious, bad enough, but not the worst, for these salient angles were all varnished over with a cold repellent cynicism. His passions vented themselves in sneers. There seemed to him no moral susceptibility, and, what was more remarkable in a proud nature, little or nothing of the true point of honour. He had, to a morbid excess, that desire to rise which is vulgarly called ambition, but no wish for the esteem or the love of his species, only the hard wish to succeed, not shine, not serve, succeed, that he might have the right to despise a world which galled his self-conceit." we have suggested the influence of his aims and vicissitudes upon his literature. It was more conspicuous in his later than in his earlier writings. Nearly all that he wrote in the last two or three years, including much of his best poetry, was in some sense biographical. In draperies of his imagination, those who had taken the trouble to trace his steps could perceive, but slightly concealed, the figure of himself apropos of the disparaging portion of the above well-written sketch let us truthfully say some four or five years since when editing a daily paper in this city mr poe was employed by us for several months as critic and sub-editor this was our first personal acquaintance with him he resided with his wife and mother at fordham a few miles out of town, but was at his desk in the office from nine in the morning till the evening paper went to press. With the highest admiration for his genius, and a willingness to let it atone for more than ordinary irregularity, we were led by common report to expect a very capricious attention to his duties, and occasionally a scene of violence and difficulty. Time went on, however— And he was invariably punctual and industrious. With his pale, beautiful, and intellectual face, as a reminder of what genius was in him, it was impossible, of course, not to treat him always with deferential courtesy, and to our occasional request that he would not probe too deep in a criticism, or that he would erase a passage coloured too highly with his resentments against society and mankind, he readily and courteously assented far more yielding than most men, we thought, on points so excusably sensitive. With a prospect of taking the lead in another periodical, he, at last, voluntarily gave up his employment with us, and through all of this considerable period we had seen but one presentment of the man, a quiet, patient, industrious, and most gentlemanly person, commanding the utmost respect and good feeling by his unvarying deportment and ability. Residing as he did in the country, we never met Mr. Poe in hours of leisure, but he frequently called on us afterward at our place of business, and we met him often in the street, invariably the same sad-mannered, winning and refined gentleman, such as we had always known him. It was by rumor only, up to the day of his death, THAT WE KNEW OF ANY OTHER DEVELOPMENT OF MANNER OR CHARACTER. WE HEARD FROM ONE WHO KNEW HIM WELL, WHAT SHOULD BE STATED IN ALL MENTION OF HIS LAMENTABLE IRREGULARITIES, THAT WITH A SINGLE GLASS OF WINE HIS WHOLE NATURE WAS REVERSED, THE DEMON BECAME UPPERMOST, AND THOUGH NONE OF THE USUAL SIGNS OF INTOXICATION WERE VISIBLE, HIS WILL WAS PALPABLY INSANE. Possessing his reasoning faculties in excited activity at such times, and seeking his acquaintances with his wonted look and memory, he easily seemed personating only another phase of his natural character, and was accused, accordingly, of insulting, arrogance, and bad-heartedness. In this reversed character, we repeat, it was never our chance to see him. We know it from hearsay, and we mention it in connection with this sad infirmity of physical constitution which puts it upon very nearly the ground of a temporary and almost irresponsible insanity the arrogance vanity and depravity of heart of which mr poe was generally accused seem to us referable altogether to this reversed phase of his character under that degree of intoxication which only acted upon him by demonizing his sense of truth and right, he doubtless said and did much that was wholly irreconcilable with his better nature. But when himself, and as we knew him only, his modesty and unaffected humility, as to his own deservings, were a constant charm to his character, his letters, Of which the constant application for autographs has taken from us we are sorry to confess the greater portion exhibited this quality very strongly in one of the carelessly written notes of which we chance still to retain possession for instance he speaks of the raven that extraordinary poem which electrified the world of imaginative readers and has become the type of a school of poetry of its own and in evident earnest, attributes its success to the few words of commendation with which we had prefaced it in this paper. It will throw light on his sane character to give a literal copy of the note. Fordham, April the twentieth, eighteen forty-nine. My dear Willis, the poem which I enclose and which I am so vain as to hope you will like in some respects. Has been just published in a paper for which sheer necessity compels me to write now and then. It pays well as times go, but unquestionably it ought to pay ten prices, for whatever I send it, I feel I am consigning to the tomb of the Capulets. The verses accompanying this, may I beg you to take out of the tomb and bring them to light in the Home Journal? If you can oblige me so far as to copy them, I do not think it will be necessary to say, from the, that would be too bad, and perhaps from a late, paper would do. I have not forgotten how a good word in season from you made the raven, and made Ulalu, which, by the way, people have done me the honor of attributing to you. Therefore, I would ask you, if I dared, to say something of these lines, if they please you. Truly yours ever edgar a poe fordham january the twenty second eighteen forty eight my dear mr willis i am about to make an effort at re-establishing myself in the literary world and feel that i may depend upon your aid my general aim is to start a magazine to be called the stylus but it would be useless to me even when established if not entirely out of the control of a publisher. I mean, therefore, to get up a journal which shall be my own at all points. With this end in view, I must get a list of at least 500 subscribers to begin with. Nearly 200 I have already. I propose, however, to go south and west among my personal and literary friends, old college and West Point acquaintances, and see what I can do in order to get the means of taking the first step i propose to lecture at the society library on thursday the third of february and that there may be no cause of squabbling my subject shall not be literary at all i have chosen a broad text the universe having thus given you the facts of the case i leave all the rest to the suggestions of your own tact and generosity gratefully most gratefully your friend always edgar a poe brief and chance taken as these letters are we think they sufficiently prove the existence of the very qualities denied to mr poe humility willingness to persevere belief in another's friendship and capability of cordial and grateful friendship such he assuredly was when sane Such only he has invariably seemed to us, in all we have happened personally to know of him, through a friendship of five or six years. And so much easier is it to believe what we have seen and known, than what we hear of only, that we remember him but with admiration and respect, these descriptions of him, when morally insane, seeming to us like portraits, painted in sickness, of a man we have only known in health. But there is another, more touching, and far more forcible evidence that there was goodness in Edgar A. Poe. To reveal it, we are obliged to venture upon the lifting of the veil which sacredly covers grief and refinement in poverty. But we may think it be excused, if so we can brighten the memory of the poet, even were there not a more needed and immediate service which it may render to the nearest link broken by his death our first knowledge of mr poe's removal to this city was by a call which we received from a lady who introduced herself to us as the mother of his wife she was in search of employment for him and she excused her errand by mentioning that he was ill that her daughter was a confirmed invalid and that their circumstances were such as compelled her taking it upon herself The countenance of this lady, made beautiful and saintly with an evidently complete giving up of her life to privation and sorrowful tenderness, her gentle and mournful voice urging its plea, her long-forgotten but habitually and unconsciously refined manners, and her appealing and yet appreciative mention of the claims and abilities of her son, disclosed at once the presence of one of those angels upon earth that women in adversity can be it was a hard fate that she was watching over mr poe wrote with fastidious difficulty and in a style too much above the popular level to be well paid he was always in pecuniary difficulty and with his sick wife frequently in want of the merest necessaries of life winter after winter for years the most touching sight to us in this whole city has been that tireless minister to genius thinly and insufficiently clad going from office to office with a poem or an article on some literary subject to sell sometimes simply pleading in a broken voice that he was ill and begging for him mentioning nothing but that he was ill Whatever might be the reason for his writing nothing, and never, amid all her tears and recitals of distress, suffering one syllable to escape her lips that could convey a doubt of him, or a complaint, or a lessening of pride in his genius and good intentions. Her daughter died a year and a half since, but she did not desert him. She continued his ministering angel, living with him, caring for him guarding him against exposure, and when he was carried away by temptation, amid grief and the loneliness of feelings unreplied to, and awoke from his self-abandonment prostrated in destitution and suffering, begging for him still. If woman's devotion, born with a first love, and fed with human passion, hollow its object, as it is allowed to do, what does not a devotion like this, pure, Disinterested and holy as the watch of an invisible spirit, say for him who inspired it. We have a letter before us written by this lady, Mrs. Clem, on the morning in which she heard of the death of this object of her untiring care. It is merely a request that we would call upon her, but we will copy a few of its words, sacred as its privacy is, to warrant the truth of the picture we have drawn above. AND ADD FORCE TO THE APPEAL WE wish TO MAKE FOR HER. I HAVE THIS MORNING HEARD OF THE DEATH OF MY DARLING EDDIE. CAN YOU GIVE ME ANY CIRCUMSTANCES OR PARTICULARS? OH, DO NOT DESERT YOUR POOR FRIEND IN HIS BITTER AFFLICTION. ASK MR. TO COME, AS I MUST DELIVER A MESSAGE TO HIM for MY POOR EDDIE. I NEED NOT ASK YOU TO NOTICE HIS DEATH AND TO SPEAK WELL OF HIM. I KNOW YOU WILL. say what an affectionate son he was to me, his poor desolate mother. To hedge round a grave with respect, what choice is there, between the relinquished wealth and honors of the world, and the story of such a woman's unrewarded devotion? Risking what we do, in delicacy, by making it public, we feel, other reasons aside, that it betters the world to make known that there are such ministrations to its erring and gifted. What we have said will speak to some hearts. There are those who will be glad to know how the lamp, whose light of poetry has beamed on their far-away recognition, was watched over with care and pain, that they may send her, who is more darkened than they by its extinction, some token of their sympathy. She is destitute and alone. If any, far or near, will send to us what may aid and cheer her through the remainder of her life, we will joyfully place it in her hands. End of section three. This recording is by George Emerson.